Hey, welcome back to Brogan's Run. I'm Neil Brogan. Uh, it's lovely to be back uh, for this very special episode. Uh, I hope you're well. Um, so this episode is special because I got the chance to speak to somebody I've admired for a very long time. And uh, that person is Vashti Bunyan. Um, I had the chance to speak to Vashti a few weeks ago, just after she published her new book, Wayward. And we had the chance to talk about uh, the book, which is all about the journey that Vashti made in 1968 and 1969 uh, by horse-drawn wagon across England and Scotland to the Outer Hebrides, um, which resulted in the album Just Another Diamond Day. Um, It's an amazing story and it's a beautiful book and it was just so cool to be able to speak to Vashti. And I guess when you're speaking to somebody like Vashti Bunyan, who's lived this incredible life, there's so much you can, uh, you want to talk to them about and ask them about. And um, obviously, I wasn't able to ask all the questions I wanted to ask of Vashti, but um, we did cover pretty extensively the making of Just Another Diamond Day. We covered uh, most of what happens in the book in terms of the journey that she made and um, we probably didn't get enough time to touch upon her latter day career which I highly recommend people listen to if you've never heard her two latter day albums Look Aftering and Heart Leap they're both just as good as Just Another Time and Day so I fully recommend them I've made a wee playlist to go along with this episode uh, which just includes some of my favourite uh music from across Vashti's career starting with the immediate years and going through just another diamond day to the more latter day uh, 21st century stuff so um, check it out I'll put a link in uh, the show notes for this episode Um, so yeah I hope you enjoy this episode this is Vashti Bunyan house there in edinburgh is that right yes i've seen that room before on youtube there's a clip of you talking about the some things just stick in your mind uh demos and stuff and you show the little warped record that you have (laughs) have you still got that somewhere yeah i have oh yeah i see it there i left it on a windowsill years ago that's how much i cared about it <laughs> oh dear! Uh, yeah, but I'm glad I still got it, even in the bad shape it's in. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's, your warped yeah. copy of it would be worth an absolute fortune, you know. <laughs> um, but um, do you still do you have a copy of Diamond Day? Like, do you own a copy of the original final of that? I didn't for years and years and years. And then I was in New York visiting my sister, who has lived there forever. Um, And she came into the room with something behind her back. And she said, I thought you might like to have this old thing. (laughs) And it was her copy. And also my sister-in-law gave me back my brother's copy. Uh, 
he's no longer with us and it was very kind of her to to give me that so I do have them but they've just gone away to get copied to be reissued and I've lent them to somebody to to copy the artwork so uh, I'm sure I'll get them yes um because I mean I was looking at discogs there to see what the current value of the record is because from what I understand there was maybe about 900 copies of the original record made so they obviously have this huge rarity value. Is that right? Do you know if that's right? Well, um, I asked Joe Boyd about it, and he couldn't remember completely, but he thinks only 300. Really? But that is very few. Wow. Considering that they do turn up every so often, like on Discogs or on eBay. Yeah. They do turn up. So I would love to know, but nobody nobody knows, and there are no records of, of how many were made. Yeah. So. Um, that just adds to the mystery um, of the whole thing, doesn't it? And now that you've told me that, I'm sure the value is probably going to go up again. <laughs> so, because um, it's just it's crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah, really, it's it's wild. I mean, the going rate there is about eighteen hundred pounds, but it's gone for as much as three thousand, from what I can tell. Yes. So yes, it has. It's I know it's quite mad. I have been offered one recently for, but yes, about seventeen hundred pounds. But um, I think, well, I'll just keep my two that came from my brother and my sister, and yeah. they're special. So yeah. absolutely. But the original ones that you would have got when it came out, you just gave them mm-hmm. all away. Is that right? You say that in the book. I gave them all away. Yes, yeah. I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't that fond of it. Yeah, and I did give them away. Um, yeah, because you say that in the book, and part of what this, what I'm trying to do with this podcast is um, just talk to artists about their work, about how they feel about it after the fact, and and this is a kind of real case in point because um, mm-hmm. you say in the book, you know, you, when you when you heard it for the first time, it was maybe a year or so after you recorded it, and you kind of moved yeah. on mentally from the whole thing, and you were in a different place. You had a baby. And you were very focused on that. And so, and you just heard the production. There was things in the production you didn't like. Um, Mm -hmm. And then finally, when it was uh, reviewed, the only review you read was quite negative. And it's, it said that it depressed the person who, who who listened to it. And that, that was kind of like, that was it. You know, after that, you were done with it. Done. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I couldn't bear the thought that I'd made somebody unhappy by that album yeah and to me it was it was not an unhappy album but i i don't know whenever i listen to it now if i ever listen to it now i I hear different things in it different feelings from it yeah but at the time to read that somebody had been made to feel depressed by it i just closed it it was a a music paper i closed it i remember thinking okay i'm never doing this again ever right Ever. I'm never picking up a guitar again. I'm never going into a recording studio again. Uh-huh. That's it. And it was. Yeah. And it's it's bizarre that they would have written that because, you know, most people, including myself, when they listen to that record, it's incredibly, um, it's a calming record, you know, and it, it's a positive sounding record. It's it's certainly not something that would make you feel unhappy. You know, it's it's got this lovely quality to it. Yeah. Well, I, I've heard from... A few people, really, quite a lot of people, that that it does have a calming effect. Yeah. And 
it also sends babies to sleep, yeah. which really yeah. pleases me. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and I wrote those songs to comfort me when I was going through a, a bad time. Yeah. And so maybe that comes across a bit. I hope so. Exactly, hope. yeah. And I think it definitely does. Um, and I guess we'll come to that a wee bit. Um, I wanted to just ask you, I guess I usually try and do these conversations in a kind of linear way. So I'll try and, and guide it through like biographically in a linear way, but it usually ends up just going all over the place. I'll go all over the yeah. place. <laughs> you start uh, in the book, you just start by talking about your early life and you grew mm. up in um, Hampstead Heath the first few years of your life um, yes. in quite a big house. There's yes. a picture of it there. And um, yes. so that was, you know, a quite an affluent place that you grew up. And then you would have gone, you went on to like a boarding school. Well, the first thing that happened was that my father had a heart attack and we had to move into central London and do a, a pretty horrible place. Right. So and that changed quite yeah. radically. That, that changed the whole family yes. quite a lot. Um, and yes, I had a, I had a lot of freedom after that. So yeah, London. Uh-huh. <laughs> bomb hit london was my playground yeah but yes i i was a fairly wild child and so i was sent off to boarding school and then i was just about to ask you about cliff richard um because <laughs> uh i didn't expect to see cliff popping up in your book he's not the kind of person i would associate with you and i was kind of surprised and delighted just to see cliff cliff's name there um he was one of your first kind of idols when you were a teenager is that right yes uh my mother's friend. He he was an entrepreneur who had um, who put on shows every summer at the Blackpool um, Opera House. Was it? Yeah, can't remember. But anyway, yes. So he got us tickets to go and see Cliff Richard live, and I was absolutely out of my mind with joy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It was somebody real, and I'd only ever seen these people on a black and white TV, and we didn't even have one. It was our neighbours who had, had a black and white TV. Yeah. So to actually see somebody real was quite incredible to me. Uh-huh. And I was able to go backstage and try to get his autograph. <laughs> and um, he was quite moody in the book, you write. Yeah, in, in, in the book I write that he was... Um, very dark looking, very angry looking, very, right. um, I don't know, the, the, he just looked really unhappy. Oh, and from being completely incandescent with joy, I was just really saddened for him that yeah. that he was not have, looking like he was having as much of a good time as I was. Um, yeah. he was. He was just, yeah, re- really uh, angry looking. That's just really surprising, isn't it? It's the last thing you would expect. It was the last thing I expected. But then after I'd written what I've written in the book, I heard Mm -hmm. from Bob Stanley, who has encyclopedic knowledge of pop music at that time. And he said, you know that Cliff Richard's dad had just died. Oh, right. (laughs) No. Okay. That's why. And I just thought he hated me. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because he was he was heartbroken and grief struck and so right. but I'd already you know it had already come out in the book what I'd written and and I put that wonderful photograph of him looking looking moody. Well there you go that explains it but that's interesting that he was able to pinpoint that that was that moment that you happened to walk in on that he would he was 
grieving. Poor wee boy. He was only, what, 19, 20, something like that. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned that film that he made, Expresso Bongo. Um, I watched a clip of that. I've never seen the whole film. There's an amazing clip where he's having this kind of bongo freakout in a Soho coffee shop or whatever, and everyone starts dancing and the shadows are there. Yes. And it's great. It's great. Well, it's a wonderful film uh, uh, and really great little window into that era. Yeah. It's worth watching all of it, actually, if you can bear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I will seek it out. Um, yeah. I, noticed, I remember reading... Just, I guess it's a connection with Andrew Luke Oldham because he writes about that film quite a lot in his book. Right. Um, yes. he, he mentions it there. Did you ever talk to him about that movie or about Cliff? No. no. <laughs> I just wondered if you might have bonded over that. Yeah, yeah. We, we might have. Had we ever spoken to each other very much, then we might have. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't. Yeah. You had your Cliff phase and then – you went to Ruskin College, and it was there that you started to learn to play the guitar with uh, Bert Whedon book. Is that right? Bert Whedon play in a day. Yes, yeah. my friend ha- had a copy of the book, and she also had a guitar. So I, I I learned on her guitar. Yes, it was an art school. That it was the Ruskin School of Drawing. Yeah, and um, I uh, became much more interested in uh, writing songs. Yeah, um, the guitar and all of that, and I, then I was in painting, because we were made to. Uh, well, we weren't allowed to paint for the first year. We just had to draw, and it was incredibly boring. And so, right. music, music interested me much more. Yeah, so, so I got thrown out. And your your drawings appear throughout uh, Wayward. They're these really charming kind of. Uh, kind of like pencil drawing drawings is that right they are pencil drawings yes some of them I, I did a while ago and some of them i've done more recently but the ones i did a while ago are much more detailed <laughs> yeah because that was another thing i was just going to ask about the book which was that i read that you started the book in the 90s is that right a long time ago yes yeah 28 years ago i i started writing down the story for my kids really and I did those drawings and I sent them off with a synopsis and a couple of chapters to various publishers and got nothing back, absolutely nothing. So so I ditched the whole idea for a long, 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 long time. And this would have been obviously pre the kind of resurgence of interest in your music around 2000, uh, late 90s. and that's a really exciting moment near the end of the book where you go on the internet and start to learn that people are talking about your music for the first time and everything that flows from that. Extraordinary moment. I'll never forget it, really. Um, to see, well, I don't know, I suppose people when they first get get on the internet might put their name into a search engine. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly did. It was, Alta, <laughs> <laughs> it was Alta Vista at the time. It was pre-Google, pre-Google. Right. Um, and up came my name, and I was astonished yeah. that somebody was asking about what had happened to me. And so I wrote to him, and he pointed me towards all the places on the, on the internet where my music still existed and where mm-hmm. people were listening to it and talking about it. Nobody had ever said anything to me at all about it. So yeah. That was a whole whole new chapter of my life. Yeah, and everything that this sort of came from that. Um, and you write also then that when you eventually got the master tape 
I, he went and found it in a warehouse yes. and then he uh, took it out in a thunderstorm and took it on the tube. <laughs> so it was like so close to being wiped after so being fined. So close to being wiped. I was so lucky and I was so stupid. It never occurred to me that, that you know, a magnetic tape might be very yeah. vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. But, I mean, I suppose it adds that little extra bit of jeopardy to the whole thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it sure did. It sure did. Yes, yeah. I mean, it was wonderful to find the tape at all, but, oh, boy. And then when we did uh, take it into a studio to play it, it was it was fine. It was perfect. So yes. thank goodness for that. Thank, thank goodness, indeed. <laughs> and um, so then just moving on slightly then, you're starting to demo songs in about 1964. You, w- you went to New York uh, to visit your sister and you kind of got into Bob Dylan yes. when you were there. Yes. And um, so that was when you started to write songs yourself. Is that right? I, I had been writing songs uh, while I was at the Ruskin. I, I was there for two years. And so throughout that two years, I was writing songs and writing with a friend and writing by myself. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do with them. But when I went to stay with my sister in New York and I came across Bob Dylan's, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, and that just opened my mind, Um, not only politically and socially, but just musically. It was a complete uh, revelation to me. And when I came back from New York, I had decided that I wanted to be a nomadic singer, a romantically nomadic singer with my guitar over my back and just wandering, wandering. Of course, that never happened. But um, that was when I met Andrew Lou Golden. Yeah. And he offered me a, a Mick Jagger and Keith Richards song as my first single. Yeah. And I complained and said, no, I want to write, I want to record my own songs. Thank you yeah. very much. I yeah. don't want a stand song, thank you. Yeah. Which is incredibly arrogant of me, but anyway, he he put my own song on the B side of something's to stick in your mind. Yeah, there's a funny bit in the book where you're saying that um you went on the radio and, and said that you were better at writing songs than Mick Jagger. What you actually meant was that you were better better at writing songs for you. Yes. Um to sing. Um yeah. and they kind of punished you by making you paint the office. Is that right? <laughs> Yes, they thought that I was maybe getting a bit too big for my boots and that I needed bringing down a little. So <laughs> it stuck me up a ladder, <laughs> painting painting the office walls and also designing posters and things like that, which right. I, I, I didn't mind. It's funny, I just didn't mind. I minded that they didn't let me tour. I minded that, that I couldn't... I couldn't be the kind of musician I wanted to be, which was to be playing to people, and I wasn't allowed to do that. Why wouldn't they let you tour, though? What was their what was their reason? Uh, the reason they gave was that they thought that was what had ruined Marianne Faithful, and that that had made her leave them. Right. And they didn't want the same thing to happen to me. Right. But yes, I, I think they just. I think they probably didn't know what to do with me, actually because I wasn't like anyone else. Although I had been promoted in the press as the replacement for Marianne Faithful, I didn't feel as if I was anything like her at all. Um, and I moaned that she didn't write her own songs, not like I did. Yeah, yeah. 
and I didn't think there was anything like her that you know but but that's that was where I had been put and, and yeah. I guess that's where I stayed for a very long time and I'm probably still there well I mean it was kind of the beginning of you being labeled in a certain way that didn't actually you didn't actually agree with so and initially you're kind of labeled as this Marianne faithful type mm-hmm. and then later on it was the folk kind of association that you got um through obviously making a record with Joe Boyd and people from incredible string bands stuff like that so you had these labels put on you that didn't really fit uh, right from the outset yeah it's a battle that is probably a hopeless battle really because I'm still referred to as folk singer um, yeah. however much I complain about it and even my my music agent when she writes contracts for me if I'm doing a show she puts a, a clause in to say that none of the promotion must mention the word folk <laughs> <laughs> right okay <laughs> so far that's been great but as far as uh, the the book goes you know I still read you know folk singer folk mm-hmm. folk this and folk that and I don't feel as if I'm anything like that at all. Anything yeah. like a folk singer. I've never felt that I was a folk singer. I think Joe Boyd kind of backs you up on that because he he said that you know he didn't think of you in that way. Um, and there's a bit in the book where he actually apologizes to you for getting um, incredible string man and Fairport involved in in um, <laughs> that record because <laughs> of the associations that came from it. Uh, with folk, it was a genuine apology because right. uh, yeah, he 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 said, "Well, I came to visit you, and you were living with a horse and a wagon and a dog and a boyfriend in in a field. We weren't actually; we were in the house at that time. But he said, yeah. I came to visit you, and you were living the most folky life of anybody I knew.' Yeah, right. And so I just assumed that's what you were, and and yet he." he he had said later that no, he didn't put me in. He didn't uh, put me together with the string band and and Fairport. Uh, he he did think that I was something different. But because they were on that album, that's that's the route that it took. Um, um, uh, although Robert Kirby, Nick Drake's arranger, had had arranged three of the songs, and they were exactly what I wanted, and. You know, if the whole album had been like that, it wouldn't have been labelled folk in the same way, uh, you know, as having the string band on it or Fairport musicians. Wonderful as they were, uh, I didn't know anything about them because, you know, I, I didn't have a clue who anyone was. But um, if I had known what their music was like maybe before we recorded Just Another Diamond Day, then I might have said, ah, uh, I don't think so. But right. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know. And, yeah. and I, I know I digress a bit here. But producers then were God. You didn't. You didn't go against a producer. You didn't say this is what I want and I don't like what you're doing because mm-hmm. the producer then was king. And uh, I think it's very, very, very different now. Yeah. And it's hard to remember what it was like then. That mm-hmm. was the producer. And so I would never have dreamt of saying to Joe, well, no, I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to do it a different way. I think that where he, what he was doing in 1970, that your record just fit fitted in with the, the kind mm-hmm. of aesthetic that he was working with at that time yeah. and the other musicians and bands and artists. 
Um, but it's interesting in the book you mentioned that he was trying to record you like years before that in about 66 67 yes and it's interesting to imagine what that record might have been like because he was in with pink floyd and people like that at that time the sid uh-huh. barrett era and yes. that would have been a completely different record you know totally different totally different because i was still very much writing my own my own songs that were quite different to to what i wrote later for diamond day um uh, and yes, they they were small love songs, small pop songs. You know, they weren't folk songs at all. And so if they had been, if they had been orchestrated in the way that I wanted back then, yes, it could have could have been very different. And and sometimes I think I might go back and actually orchestrate those songs. It would be right. Fun. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah. You can kind of hear that pop influence even in those demos from 1964 they sound like they're somewhere between uh kind of uh you know there's a bit of a dylan influence you can hear it but also mm-hmm. there's pop in there as well mm-hmm. it could easily just be pop songs yeah. you know it's everly brothers and buddy holly yeah probably even there dare i say it, a little bit of cliff richard from when i was 13 <laughs> right right <laughs> that, that it goes in you know but yeah and, and they're more like sort of carols and 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 uh, that they're definitely not not folk songs actually uh-huh. two of them could be called folk songs right right and i guess just to go back for a moment to that era of being with immediate records and andrew um i mean i was wondering just out of interest how much contact you would have had with the stones and their circle at that time did you did you interact with them at all i didn't interact with anybody i was way too shy and um, yes, I, I think I've said in, in the book that I was pretty much merging with the wallpaper, with the with the studio walls. You know, when we were right. doing something stick in your mind, Mick Jagger was there, uh, but he was making fun of me and uh, yeah, little quiet voice. You know, with his his two hands against his ear like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, I, I was. I, I don't know that I was terrified of them, but I was intimidated, I guess. And and I was very shy anyway. And so, I yes, I never did make any musician friends, really. Um, right. Which I, I hugely regret. But that was the way I was. I was very much on my own. Yeah. I, I didn't seek out other musicians in any way. Um, well, I guess the, the Stones, though, would have had this quite intimidating um presence you know to be around mm-hmm. especially at that time you know yeah. kind of brian jones era mm-hmm. it would have been scary to suddenly be in a room with those people you know but also fascinating and also i loved that the whole entertainment industry was getting taken over by young people and yeah. being in that studio with all those young musicians was the most mm-hmm. wonderful thing for me and i really enjoyed it celebrated the fact that I, I was just this little little person on the edge of it but that i could witness this yeah. whole change that was taking place was was wonderful yeah yeah and there's some there's some footage in, on youtube from the film tonight let's all make love in london i think it's a you recording um winter is yeah, blue, winter is blue yeah. and you've got andrew and then you've got glenn johns uh yeah. recording you 
And mm-hmm. Andrew, it's quite funny because Andrew's clearly aware of the cameras and he's kind of gesticulating and being the producer. <laughs> and you could see as well how kind of withdrawn you are in it. You're kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. you can't, you are, you're like merging with the shadows a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another thing I was going to ask you, but if you, if you'd watched, um, the Beatles get back documentary, cause Glenn Johns is in that quite a lot. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. That's something I really, I mean, I just keep saying I must, must, must watch it. And I keep meeting people who say, have you watched it yet? And yeah, I haven't yeah. yet. I, I must because I'm sure it's a wonderful thing to watch. Well, just from, from your point of view, like the just, mm-hmm. I don't know how much, you know, contact you would have had with somebody like Glenn Johns apart from when he was recording you, but his mm-hmm. outfits in that film are incredible. Like in Get Back, he just every day comes in with this new wild outfit. (laughs) Wonderful. I must watch it. I must watch it. It is great. Um, And so, I mean, you write quite warmly about Andrew now that you sort of have Mm -hmm. this different relationship now. You're quite friendly now. But at the time, he would have been maybe somebody you were quite, you know, maybe a bit intimidated by because of his reputation. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could not have been more different. He was the, the most flamboyant person. Not flamboyant, but I think that's the wrong word, probably. But um, I was just the opposite of whatever he was. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, we, we would never, we could never have come together in any way then. But certainly in more recent years, um, he's been incredibly kind and helpful and wise, really. Yeah. And, and advising me in all kinds of different ways. And I really appreciate it that, uh, that yeah, can have a have a bit of a laugh about things and uh, yeah, and, yeah, and be, and be much uh, more communicative than ever we were in those early days. Which yeah. is, is great for me. It's really, it's a, it's a lovely feeling. It's like closing a circle. Yeah, and he says the the advice he gives you now is look after your hearth. Is that right? Yeah. So he means like look after your family and your home. Yes, he says stay close to and look after your hearth. And yeah. he's right. You know, because yeah. the times that I've drifted away from it, when I've been so self involved in the music or the writing or whatever. I think about what he said, and then he's absolutely right. You can you can drift away and yeah. stop, stop caring for people uh-huh. in the same way. And I think that that was a great bit of advice, and I have tried to follow it. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> one of those kind of aphorisms or whatever where it seems kind of obvious, but it's the yeah. kind of thing that would slip. You know, sometimes you would forget that, and it's good to be reminded yeah. um, of things like that. And yeah, so that's that's lovely. Um, mm. So I guess just to go back to around this era, then you record the single with um, with Andrew, and then it didn't really do very well at the time. Nope. And then eventually you recorded um, Train Song, which again at the time was overlooked. But now, mm-hmm. if you go on Spotify, it's up there in like one of your biggest songs because yeah. it's been used laterally, you know, in various things. Um, yes. And it's one of the biggest songs now, so that's. That's great, but at the time, you it, because that didn't work out. You you then kind of um, went through a kind of almost like a breakdown. Is that right? Well, it was after Train Song. Well, something's just sticking in your mind was Andrew Lugaldem, and then I left. Yeah. I left his <laughs> his sphere, and mm-hmm. 
just made train song with just uh, a, um, a double bass, a cello, and two guitars, and that mm-hmm. was it. Instead of mm-hmm. the incredible array of instruments that Andrew used, yeah, it didn't work. Again, it didn't work. I was told it was uncommercial, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to Immediate and recorded three more tracks mm-hmm. over time, over a year and a half or so. None of them were released, and yeah. after that, I just, I just hit a wall. I, I, I. Now you would call it a breakdown, but then it was just pure despair, and yeah. I, I didn't, didn't do well. That's again where Cliff comes back into it for a moment because they told you that he was interested in one of the songs that you recorded, yes. "Winter Is Blue," and so yeah. you couldn't, it couldn't be released. Like it's hard to imagine Cliff singing that song. I'm sure it was a big mistake. It was Tony Calder, Andrew's partner, immediate. He called me in and said, Cliff wants the song, so you, we can't release it. But later on, many years later, we realised that it was he actually recorded Blue Turns to Grey, which was a Stones song. And I uh-huh. think that maybe Tony Calder got it mixed up and uh-huh. thought that My Winter is Blue was their Stones song that Cliff wanted. Yeah. And, so, and so Winter is Blue was was shelved. Um, yeah. I think that's probably what happened because it's the sort of thing that did happen. You know, immediate was just, it was immediate. <laughs> and if things didn't work out straight away, then they were shelved. And that's what happened to Winter is Blue. Yeah. Um, and so at this point, you're kind of, you're quite, you're, you're taking some like medication and stuff and your, your family life is difficult. Um, your Your mom becomes very unwell. And then you kind of leave home, basically. And this is the point where you've kind of met um, Robert Lewis. um, And you basically start living with him, like basically sleeping rough in a a kind of in woodland. Is that right? Yes, in a wood under a rhododendron bush where he had put a canvas. So it sort of made a roof under this rhododendron bush. Mm-hmm. And I found some white muslin and made curtains to go around it. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It was really lovely. And I had my dog because that's that's why I had to leave home because my father said the dog goes or you go. So I went. <laughs> I, went right. to, I went to live in a bush in a wood with Robin. But um, it, it was the right thing to do. And mm-hmm. we took off from there. And I yeah. started writing songs again after not writing them for a while. That's right. And so you you wrote uh, the song Glue Worms about that time when you were living yeah. in the woods for yeah. whatever it was, weeks or days. Um, and yeah. that's the point you write in the book where your songs start to become these narrative songs rather than uh, yeah. personal. They're not so much directly personal songs, although that one is like a love song. But you start to write these narrative songs for the, for the yes. album. Well, certainly when... Um... Well, we got thrown out of the wood by the Bank of England, um, and that was when we found a little old broken-down horse-drawn bread wagon and a horse, and we we uh, took off in in that. And it was throughout that journey that I started writing the the more narrative songs. Yeah. And it was partly because Robert said, "When are you going to stop writing these miserable little love songs?" <laughs> right. And start writing about the beautiful world around you, and so uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I kind of did. That moment when you you find the um, 
the the wagon and and you find Bess, the horse. You'd met Donovan around this time because Robert knew Donovan through somebody else. Yeah. And Donovan had, had invited you to go and live in Sky in this kind of community that he had there. He he had just bought some islands off the west coast of Sky, off the west coast of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And he what he wanted was to establish some kind of not exactly a community, but to have people in that part of the world writers and painters and uh people like him yeah. <laughs> uh, to to populate the the rundown cottages and ruins that there were on his land and he called it he, he thought that he wanted a west coast renaissance yeah. and that was what he wanted and it sounded so wonderful and that's what we were going to that's what robert and i were going towards with that journey um and Don, donovan went up in his land rover with his friends yeah, Robert and me two summers and a winter to get there. Uh, by yeah. which time it hadn't happened because in within that time, the time that Robert and I were making that journey, Donovan had become world world success, fulfilling stadiums, and uh, just incredible things had happened to him in that time. And so yeah. I think his islands, you know, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> that'll happen or it won't happen. But he was not there. He was away being incredibly successful. Donovan, I think he's quite often overlooked now in terms of how influential he was in the 60s on so many different artists and how important he was. Um, it's it's kind of like he's, he's, all, he's quite often overlooked now and, and not forgotten, but... Uh, people forget how big he was and how successful and yeah. just how many different artists he was interacting with. Because if you look at the timeline of when you would have been with him, he's literally, I think that's like spring of 68. So he's just come back probably from India where he was with the Beatles. Yeah, exactly. You know, yes, that was that time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, he was influential. And I think his lyrics are not appreciated for the, the real poetry that they are and and i think the the terrible thing that happened to him was being compared to dylan and found to be lacking and he was not dylan you know i think uh, clearly when he was very first starting he was (laughs) not exactly emulating dylan but clearly dylan was his hero um but the the direction that he took himself i think was so so different there's that bit in um don't look back the dylan movie where he's dylan's being quite mean to donovan at a party (laughs) horrible and i think that did so much damage to donovan Mm. and and yes that is a a thing that people really remember about him and uh i think it it, yeah it's it's a bit heartbreaking yeah but uh, he he actually you acknowledge in the book that he directly influenced the songs in just another diamond day because yeah. he was the last sort of person the last music you were exposed to before you went off on your journey. Yeah, well, well we spent a bit of time in his house in Essex while the wagon was being repaired, ready for the journey. And mm-hmm. um, what I noticed about him mostly was that his guitar was never from far from his side, mm-hmm. that he would pick it up at, at any moment. And he was like the minstrel amongst all the people who were staying in the house. And, and I enjoyed listening to the way that he was forming his songs because some yeah. of them were only, you know, being half half made at that time. Mm-hmm. And... 
when I when we got to his place in Sky and he just happened to be there. Yeah. Very short visit. I picked I borrowed his guitar and I sang Rain, Rainbow River. And yeah. I know that, that that the phrasing in Rainbow River is very much influenced by Donovan. I don't know about all the other songs in in, in the album, but that one definitely. Right. And I can see his recognition yeah. across his face. And he he knew. Um and so whenever I'm I sing or listen to that song. I, I think about him. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can hear some of the, in the phrasing, uh, you can mm-hmm. cer- certainly hear an influence there. Um, so yeah. And, and you write that Robert was kind of a bit like obsessed with, with Donovan and, and sort of idolized him a bit. Is that right? Yes. Yes. yes definitely. Um, and Dylan. <laughs> And Dylan, yeah. <laughs> and Dylan, yeah. yeah. And there was like, there's a kind of jaw dropping moment. It's, it's kind of like one of a few moments where there's a kind of something that a man will do in the story that's just like hard to believe. And there's a there's the moment where he is with Donovan at a party or something, and he tries to, well, he kind of offers you to Donovan without you being present. And as though you're his property, and this is just after you kind of met him, really, and sort of started being with him for a little while. I mean, yeah. it's it's hard to believe that. Do you know what I mean? And I it, it's quite indicative <laughs> of that era. There's a few instances like that, not just with Robert Lewis, but with other kind of male influential characters in in your story. There's this patriarchal influence over things. How do you feel about all of that now? Um, I feel. That's the way it was. That's the way it was. Things have gradually, gradually, gradually changed. And the way that I look back on it is that I I do not want to blame anything that happened to me on mm. the fact that I was a girl. Right. Um, I was, whatever happened to me was because of the way I was and not so much about the way that I was treated by other people, particularly men. I I think I've said in the book, there was no advantage taken that was not freely given. And it's the way I was then. I feel as if I was in control completely. It was my responsibility to make the choices I made and, and not... And it was not imposed upon me. And that might not be the right thing the, or the, the right way to look at it, but it's the way that I look at it, mm-hmm. that I don't blame. I, yeah. I, I take my part in it. Right. I think, yeah, it's important to say that it's not a judgmental book. You're not really judging anybody in the story. No, no um, I'm not. So because you have this distance from everything now? Yes. Um, I think it was partly because he had just uh, uh, broken up with somebody that was very special to him. And he was, Donovan was at the piano playing Jennifer Juniper in a minor key. And he was clearly, clearly upset. So maybe Robert thought, um, oh, well, you can have her if you want. Thank <laughs> you. God, my God. Uh, so, yeah, but yes. And so, of course, the most upsetting thing was that I was turned down. <laughs> right. No, not the most upsetting, but partly, partly. I didn't know how to feel about it, whether yeah. angry with Robert or, or humiliated completely. 
there's another bit where um, you've just started in the wagon, and I find this quite um, indicative as well, where uh, Robert took your makeup and threw it away. <laughs> so you had all this like Mary Quant kind of amazing makeup, yeah. and he just chucked oh, it over a hedge. Just chucked it. I, rem- I just can remember this high arc of my little bag going over the hedge. And <laughs> And we were going too fast for me to jump down and go back and get it. And and yes, he 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 was trying to to help me adjust to my new life. And uh, I yeah, well, I don't think I will make up for a long time after that. Um, mm. But it, yes, it did. It was so emblematic of the change in my life. You know, yeah. from from being well, I'd, I had a a rather small, <laughs> short-lived modelling career, and just uh, being—I uh, don't know. I think I would never have dreamt of going anywhere without makeup, or, yeah. or, or being—you know—being with people without makeup. And so it was a huge change for me, yeah. um, and that's what he wanted—you know—to change <laughs> things completely. Right, and, and I, that reminds me of another bit where. When you first actually met Robert, you were, he was hitchhiking and you picked him up with your then boyfriend and mm-hmm. he said to you, get in the back, Vashti. <laughs> yeah, I've never uh, forgotten. So that Robert he could get in. Either. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I know, I know. And I'm sure he didn't mean it unkindly. He, and he, you know, it was probably practical for me to get in the back so the hitchhiker could get in, in the front. But right. uh, neither of us have ever forgotten that, that uh, <laughs> get in the back, Vashti. <laughs> yeah. Going through 1968, then you're kind of in the spring and summer, you're traveling up the country and you don't really, you do have this plan to go to Donovan's um, Island, uh, but um, you're kind of making it all up as you go along. You're, you're improvising yeah. things and you're finding yeah. out that you have to, you don't have any money. You're having to do these kind of odd jobs along the way to sort of uh-huh. pay for scraps of food and, and feed your horse and everything. Yeah, and, and, and get get the horse shod as well to find blacksmiths to yeah shoot. yeah. And then, so one of the things that kind of that strikes me about reading it is the kindness of some of the people you meet along the way, who always seem to kind of bail you out at just a critical moment. Yes. Um, and also, uh, there's a there's a moment where you meet uh, some some travelers, I think in Birmingham, and the kindness they show towards you. When yes. you know you've been traveling for you know, through suburbs and people haven't been so kind, um, um, and you wrote also that you actually find out later that you do have some Romani um, lineage in your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you aware of that at the time? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it was sometimes. Sometimes it was maybe sort of joked about in in my family, but never taken seriously. Um, and yes, it, it was a, a traveller woman who had been really, really kind to me and shown me a lot of ways that I should be, like hanging the the the, the washing on on thorn bushes to dry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and having everything in bags rather than boxes because bags you could put them all into a small space and things like that. And yeah, she looked at me and then she looked at Robert and she looked back at me and she said, well, you're one of us, but he ain't. Um, yeah. Thought, oh, wow. 
maybe it's true. And in yeah. later years, I found out a bit more that, yes, my, my mother's mother's father mm-hmm. was, uh, was a Romani, and it had been very much covered over in, in, in the family history. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, when that woman said what she said to me, it made me incredibly proud Right, right. Um, and feel as if I'd found, I'd sort of found a bit of the jigsaw of my life. That uh, maybe, maybe, maybe she was right, and that maybe there is a bit in me. And I hope, I hope there is. <laughs> it would, it would fit. It would fit. Absolutely, absolutely would fit. Um, I guess then later in '68, you're kind of. Um, further up the country by this point um and you meet the mcfarlands who let you stay in their house literally at the drop of a hat like you met them at the side of the road and within minutes they're offering you their house for the winter yes yes they just bought a a croft house on north east in the outer hebrides and they were on their way they were packing their car to go and uh we yeah we met them at the side of the road and they invited us in for tea and offered us their house for the winter, and we were we were wet by then. We were cold by then, yeah. um, and hadn't we didn't have any stove in the wagon or anything like that. And so to go from outside and not knowing how we were going to deal with the winter to being given a house yeah. by people who didn't know anything about us, they just I think they liked what we were trying to do because yeah. they knew that we were heading for for the Hebrides. Um, uh-huh. And they were going there themselves. I think that, you know, they felt that there was kindred there, but they knew nothing about us. We knew nothing about them. Uh-huh. And they gave us a house. Yeah. So incredible people. I can't imagine anybody doing that now. Everybody would be far too scared. But they were just lovely. They were just great people. Yeah. It's just so fortuitous because, I mean, you're getting into sort of late in autumn by that time and uh-huh. it's getting cold. And, yeah. you know, it's like if it, if that hadn't have happened, you'd be not, you you would have been exposed to the elements. Yeah. You probably, I imagine, would have had to abandon things. We couldn't abandon the horse, so everything that we did was in order to keep her with us. And we had been told about a caravan site um, that we could maybe hire something for the winter that might have had a stove in it. And that's what we were looking for when we met the McFarlands on the side of the road. Um, we were looking for that. And we might have, we might have found that. And, and so we would have found shelter. I'm sure one way or another we would have found shelter. There was no question of abandoning the, right. the, the whatever it was that was in our heads that we were moving towards yeah. the dream that we were, we were making. We would never so you would have just you would have just kept going, regardless. Yeah, we, would have kept going. we would have kept going. So in that house, while you're staying there for the winter, Joe Boyd comes up to see you, yes. um, and he says like w- that he wants you to finish your journey, and then he makes this kind of promise that he's going to record your album when you're finished. And mm-hmm. um, so, I think that's where you wrote Rose Hip November in that house. Yes. I wrote no- Rosehip November and Swallow Song, sitting mm-hmm. on the on a window seat and looking out, seeing the, the trees 
bending and the leaves rushing around in the and the, the sheep hunkering down against the wind. Yeah. And I think Rose Hip November is the dream and not the reality of farm <laughs> farm life. Um, and what I wanted with that song was was just the innocence of the shepherd and the shepherdess and the, the catch one leaf and fortune will surround you. Um, yes, that, that, that innocence was what I ached for. And that's what I wrote in Rose Hit November and in Swallow's Song. They're both the dream I was I was going towards. I think those two songs kind of go together, so that makes total sense. Um, mm. They have a similar sound and they have this yearning to them. Um, oh, yes. That's really beautiful. Like both of those songs, when I first heard that album, they were the ones that kind of really struck me um, oh. early on. You know, mm-hmm. they're just gorgeous songs. Like, um, so I'm sure, yeah, Joe Boyd was moved when he heard those songs and he was, that's why he committed to this, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. And, and Diamond uh, Day as well. He liked that song as well. But yeah. Diamond Day with the innocence in that one as well. Yeah. And that you wrote that one after this kind of ill-fated trip to the Netherlands to play <laughs> yeah. these really strange shows to children. Um which is just again mind blowing that that could have happened, you know. I know, I know. And you kind of randomly met some people who who basically invited you over there to play these shows in front of mostly like little kids. Well, I didn't know it was going to be in front of little kids. It was offered to us as a tour of of the Netherlands, uh, and when we got there, it was youth clubs. <laughs> but there was one bar in Ghent that we played in. And nobody could hear me. Nobody was listening anyway. And I ran off the stage in tears. And the barman said, well, there's this musician upstairs. You'd maybe better go and meet him. And he gave me my fee anyway. The barman there was so sweet and sent us upstairs where we met Daryl Adams, mm-hmm. um, who I'd already met back at Donovan's house. He was a great mentor to Donovan. He was one of the rambling boys with Jack Elliott. Yeah. Banjo player, beautiful banjo player. He'd had a heart attack and he was upstairs recovering. And uh, Robert wanted him to play his banjo and he said he would if I would sing. So I did sing. And he said, don't hide your light. Uh And uh, on the train back to the UK, we went through Belgium and there were these fields of horses plowing and seeds being sowed. And that's when I wrote Diamond Day. Yeah. And and in fact, that was when I met Joe Boyd and uh, he offered to make it an album of sort of documenting the journey. Yeah. By the time we finished it, you know, it was still another whole part of the journey. We were still in Lake District. Yeah. We had to get there. So, yeah, it took another whole, whole lot of time. And in the meantime, of course, I wrote different songs, which Joe wasn't quite so keen on. Yeah, you write that, that he was not so into some of the later songs, um, which surprises me. When I listen to that album, it just seems like everything just perfectly complements everything else. And there's these, like, different types of songs on it, but they all flow together as this lovely piece, you know. Um, but it's not how you heard it. And it, that's, again, what I kind of like to talk to people about is just how they feel about these things. And 
you know, you yeah. you were like uncomfortable with some of the arrangements. Yeah, uncomfortable on bass. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's strange uh, because I had only played it with, by myself, and then Christopher Sykes was playing beautiful piano on it, yeah. um, exactly as I had imagined it, really. And then when Robin Williamson very kindly played fiddle on it. Uh-huh. It made it into something else that I yeah. hadn't, that I didn't want it to be like that. But of course, I couldn't say. But you um, didn't, yeah, exactly. You didn't feel didn't. comfortable saying, "Actually, I don't like that." I don't like that. And and the 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 awful thing is that now when I listen to it, I can pan it to one side, yeah, and it's just the guitar and the piano, and yeah. the fiddle is gone, and that's the way I heard it that's the way i i i wanted it really yeah i guess so then you go into 1969 and after spending the winter in this house mm-hmm. and you're in scotland by now and you're kind of in the wilds of scotland there's a moment where somebody you're on your own because robert's gone off somewhere for to go and look at something and someone flies past you in a car and you just have this moment of doubt like what am i doing here i want to be in a car <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not in a car? Yeah. Why do I? Why am I making best do this? And yeah. uh, what what is the point in it? Or what is the sense in it all? And I still couldn't tell you. Yeah, <laughs> but it seems like something always came along to affirm what you were doing and mm-hmm. and keep you going. Yes. yes, you know, it, it was uh, you know we've been climbing for days and then suddenly we got to Glencoe and. We got the dogs inside the wagon. We climbed in the wagon, and Bess just went and yeah. went down and round and round. It, it was just such a joyful moment. Mm-hmm. It did make it make it a, a happy time for a while. But just she yeah. had enjoyed it. She, yeah. she instead of of plodding up the hill carrying our house, she could fly. It was just yeah. lovely. it was lovely. I was going to ask you, like, did you keep any kind of a journal when you were doing all this? Or is this all just stuff you've remembered from sitting down and thinking about it all? It's mostly stuff I've remembered. No, I didn't write down anything. I think Robert did, and he may still have it. I don't know. Um, But I did write the people who were so kind to us. I wrote their names and addresses in this book with the intention of writing to them once we reached our destination. And uh, I lost the book. (laughs) (laughs) it would be so precious now to know all those people that were so so kind i stayed in touch with some of them but and certainly the mcfarlands and still with their children but um no i didn't keep a journal of any kind and in fact i think i thought that the songs were the journal Mm -hmm. even though they were absolutely nothing like the reality yeah (laughs) but i think those I was when I was reading the book, I was thinking that this this story of the journey on its own is enough for a book without then also having this classic album attached to it. Like that's that's this whole other thing that just like kind of elevates it all into this almost like mythical thing because yeah. I can't really think of any other album that has this kind of story attached, you know, like a like a real narrative to it, you know. Yeah. Um so like the, the journey in itself is special enough on its own, you know, and then you have this whole other dimension when you add in the songs, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's yeah. lovely to have this as a book now and like have the story finally oh, um, told. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
I think that's why I'm finally proud of the album, that it is like nothing else, really. It, it, it pretty much stands up by itself. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I am... I'm fond of it now, whereas I couldn't listen to it for 30 years. Yeah. But now I understand it better. Um, and you write in the book, I thought this was really interesting when you talk about it, like almost like it's a long lost child that you didn't see growing up. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was this estranged thing from you and you didn't want to hear it. You didn't want to look at it and you hid it from your own children. Yeah. Um, all the while, and then they kind of secretly discovered it, maybe, and, and listened to it without you knowing about it. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I knew right that you regret, you know, not singing for your kids when they were little, um, mm. because that would have been nice, I guess, you know, but yeah. you didn't feel you just felt sad about it all, yeah, yeah, confused and sad and uh, regretful, and um. Yeah, a huge sense of failure. Um, I think that's quite hard to carry. And in any anybody who ever referred to it in any way, I would just shut it down. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't bear it. Right. And that's so sad. That's just so sad. Mm-hmm. But then one of the things that's great about your story is that it has this salvation at the end of it where <laughs> it, you're rediscovered, you know, and then, yeah. you know, everybody loves that record. So... It's it's great, and you and you've made your peace with it now. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've made my peace with it, and with Joe, and with all the musicians, and everybody. I mean, Robert Kirby was just so wonderful. You ended and, up working with him again as well. Well, I was going to. Well, I, I, Joe Boyd had these um, tribute to Nick Drake shows in mm-hmm. a few theaters around, and uh, Robert Kirby obviously was was there, and he mm-hmm. made beautiful arrangement for which will and i sang that uh, so we got to know each other a bit more having not yeah. seen each other for 30 something years um and when i was working on well i i'd made another album called look after yeah. in 2005 and then i was writing more songs and i was going to work with robert kirby on them right and he was so excited. I was so excited, and he had all these wonderful ideas, mm-hmm. and it it was a real, real tragedy to lose him because he was such a wonderful, wonderful man. But then I decided I had to do it for myself. I couldn't. I couldn't find somebody to replace him. I didn't want to find somebody to replace him, so I yeah. just tried to do it myself. And you write as well that basically. When you finished, when you were recording the album, which took about three days, you realized mm-hmm. or found out that you were pregnant with your first child. Yeah. yeah. And you said then that you didn't write another song for 33 years mm-hmm. from the time that you became pregnant or knew you were pregnant. So basically, the recording of that album until mm-hmm. your youngest child left home 33 yeah. years later. I know. Which is this extreme thing. It's you know? really extreme. And it was, a, it was. I did try occasionally. I picked up my guitar and think, mm, but it was just too, the, the sounds that came from it were too redolent of failure. And so it took until so good things were being said about Diamond Day. Yeah. And also that I got royalties for the first time with mm-hmm. which I bought a Mac and a little mixer and, and all the stuff I needed and, and, a, a, a music program, a fairly basic one, and started started writing songs again, and yeah. it just coincided 
with my last child going off to college in America. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I had been taking kids to school for 26 years. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they were widely spread, my kids. Um, and just something happened, something clicked inside mm. that uh, brought all these songs. Now, were they waiting? Had they always been there? Or it was an extraordinary feeling. Because I had tried, I had tried. Joe Boyd had me try to write a song for Judy Collins, and I wrote half of it, and I couldn't finish it. I just could never finish it, still hadn't finished it. And that was the last thing I tried, and that was just after Diamond Day. So nothing, absolutely nothing in all of those years came to me. You say he put you in a room with Nick Drake, and you were kind of trying to write a song with him, and you, you had your baby, and Nick Drake was just like at the piano not communicating no, no, neither was i well no it was it was a complete disaster really i don't know how it could ever have worked because we'd never spoken to each other i didn't know his music he didn't know mine yeah. it was an idea of joe's and of course i had this little baby and every time i put the baby down to pick up the guitar the baby cried and <laughs> I, I just had this image of nick's shoulders going higher and higher <laughs> you know we you know we, we we had to abandon this idea and so we did and we never spoke. Never spoke. It's such a tantalizing idea, though, to imagine a collaboration between mm-hmm. you and Nick Drake. You know, because I, I can see what he was trying, what he was trying to do there, Joe Boyd. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I can see his his um, his thinking. But I think I think he said <laughs> that you know uh, he said something to the effect that um, one of the things that's great about you is that you survived. Um, to enjoy your success, whereas yeah. Nick Drake obviously didn't. Uh, still here. Well, yes. I mean, um, Robert Kirby came to play trumpet and uh, French horn on Look Aftering in, in 2005, and I hadn't seen him for 30 years. And mm-hmm. he, he said, um, we're the survivors, yeah. and that's what he meant. And, you know, I'm sad that he didn't survive an awful lot longer. But... Um, I think that's what what he meant that that we we were the survivors and how how, how lucky am I that I that I did um, and that yeah. I've had this had this opportunity to do to go back and find whatever it was I had and to try it again you know and yeah. I'm I'm so fortunate to have been able to do that um, yeah and of course Nick Nick wasn't and. That is one one big big tragedy. Yeah, um, I suppose just to go go towards like um, bring things up to date a little bit. Your last record was Heart Leap, um, okay. which you made basically yourself. You produced it yourself and arranged it yourself, and that yeah. was it's kind of you finally have full autonomy over your music at that point. Mm-hmm. So that's that's great and. Um, but at the time it was released, you said you weren't you weren't going to rec- make another album. Is that right? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When we were mastering, um, Mandy Parnell, who was mastering Hartley, at the end of it, she turned to me and said, "Well, you know, when you do your next one, I'm going to come up to your studio and I'm going to rearrange it because really, you know, it's not right." <laughs> and I said, oh, "I'm never doing this again." And uh, <laughs> Dave Hull from Fat Cat, the label who put out Hartley, he was there. And so 
in the press release, he said this would probably be my last album. And, right. you know, it was a momentary outburst of mine at the end of the process saying, oh, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. Um, but I probably won't. Um, I, well, in the meantime, I've written this book mm-hmm. and I had intended to write it between all the albums, really. Right. So who knows what will happen now? Maybe, you know, because because I, I did a show at the Barbican uh, yeah. a week before last. And so running up to that, I had to pick up my guitar again yeah. and see how it felt. And so I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I'll, now that the book is done and gone and away, uh-huh. that maybe my guitar will come back to me. I don't know. I don't know. If it does, then I don't know. Or maybe I'll re-record all those very first demos and, and put other instruments on top. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, it does seem to be a cyclical thing for me. Music, music then writing, then music, then writing. Yeah. And you kind of have these long dormant periods and then you suddenly uh, spring back into life and yeah. decide to do some more. So... Well, I I hope you do more. I hope you do. Thank you. Um, I have to say the book is really beautiful. Um, I'm just going to hold it up here to prove that I have it. Um, but it is it is a lovely book, and I love the way the chapters are so. It's quite episodic, and uh, the chapters are quite short. And one of the things I like about your songs is a lot of your songs are very short as well. Like especially on just another diamond day, like there's songs that are a minute and a half. You know these really small mini songs and uh, I like that and I think it it really lends itself to the format of this book and the way it's broken up with these pictures and your your illustrations and it just really perfectly complements that record you know well thank you I thank you I, I I wanted to to keep it I didn't want to dwell on, yeah. on things I didn't want to spell too much out I wanted mm-hmm. to make the picture more than anything and I had to fight to make it that way but um yes I, I wanted it to be more like the songs and sort of condense things a bit and just make make it what was necessary really and not mm-hmm. not uh, not carry on too much about things yeah <laughs> it just yeah. sort of suggests some things but um yeah I hope it works I really do Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it does work, and um, you know, it's it's getting a lot of positive press. There was one thing I noticed on the back here, actually, just when I was waiting to speak to you, where one of the bits of uh, the blurb on the back it mentions uh, one of the reviewers cites John Bunyan. Um, <laughs> can we settle this? Are you? Is he an ancestor? I'll never know. Probably, I've never really looked into it terribly far, but I know that my grandfather did and discovered that probably not probably not and certainly it was never part of the family story that we right. were you know descended from john bunyan but yeah. because it's so i don't know such a such a great bit of press probably yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I i didn't spot that on the back of the book i should have said no actually well i wasn't but you know it, it happens it's a bit like the whole thing being called a folk singer i'm yeah descended from john bunyan but i'm neither <laughs> yeah well that's it once once your story and your art gets out in the world it's really hard to control yes. the narrative yes. after that that's something i find Very when i speak hard. to people you know yeah. 
once things are out there, they're out there. Mm. And um, I mean, I like that idea, that myth that you might be somehow connected to the Pilgrim's Progress, you know, because yeah. it just has a nice, you know, know has a nice does. circularity to it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in a way, I wish I were. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I'll probably never be able to find out. Well, um, listen, it's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. Um, oh, really has. I, I can't quite believe I'm speaking to you. It's just amazing. Oh, so thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, yeah. It's been. It's always yeah. It's 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 lovely for me to be able to revisit some of what I've written about and maybe speak differently about it. I don't know. Um, that there are there's always so much more to remember, <laughs> and I hope you remember it right. I just hope I've remembered it right. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, my thanks again to Vashti Bunyan herself. Um, it was amazing to speak to Vashti. Um, like I said earlier, when you're speaking to somebody of that stature, um, after the fact, you kind of go, ah, oh, I wish I'd asked this. Um, one of the things I wish I'd said to Vashti was just to say thank you for the great comfort that her music has brought me personally, especially over the last couple of years. And I'm sure I speak for a lot of people when I say that. Um, so if you're listening, Vashti, thank you again. And um, I want to say thank you to Ellen Turner at Ryan Books, uh, Dave Howell at Fat Cat, and Jude Rogers, all of whom uh, were really helpful uh, in the making of this program. Um, so yeah, highly recommend Wayward by Vashti Bunyan and all her albums and everything else she's done and hopefully will keep doing. Um, so yeah, thanks again for listening. Take care. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.